The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show where we bring you disclosure one guest at a time. I'm your host Mel Fabregas and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time make yourself at home. First I want to welcome and thank our new members. You are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is known by all of you. He has already been on twice this year although I had to mix his two appearances in one show. But after so many requests, we are getting it done. Cliff High has accepted my invitation for a full show. Although he usually keeps his interviews somewhat short, tonight you will experience Cliff at his best in a special three-hour edition of the Veritas show. We're going to take our usual intermission after a bit more than one hour and then two more full hours of uninterrupted and uncensored Cliff High. If you are not a Veritas member, this would be a great time to stop the audio and become a member. You will have access to Cliff High's full show and will also be able to download it and listen to all our past shows. Get access to the Magicor Forum and our exclusive member chat room where you will interact with people from all over the world. And speaking of the world, as of today, Veritas is only nine months old and people in 143 countries or territories are tuning in. 
I would like to welcome the following 11 new countries and territories. Armenia, Brunei, Gabon, Ghana, Gibraltar, Haiti, Liechtenstein, Montenegro, Myanmar, known today as Burma. And I wonder how in the world they're listening since Burma really doesn't allow this type of information to get out. Maybe their military junta wants to keep up to date. And the last two countries, Nepal and Syria. And now to some quick news on our future guest. I received an email from a listener who said Robert Emenegger, a guest who appeared on the Veritas show on April 17th of this year. The listener heard Bob Emenegger at the Angela Joyner show and says, quote, Robert Emenegger denied that there were seven seconds of video from the UFO landing in his documentary UFOs Past, Present and Future. I know that he did not deny it on your show and wondered what your feelings are on this." Unquote. Well, Joshua, I contacted Angela Joyner and she said, quote, Yes, he did deny it on my show. He did not deny it on DeAndrews' show either. Grant Cameron and DeAndrews were shocked. I wonder if he understood my question or heard me correctly. Unquote. I will be contacting Bob Emenegger myself since he told me offline and on the air that the footage of the UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base, the seven seconds, was genuine. You can listen to this show right in our archive. Come on, Bob, why change your mind? We want to know. And folks, I am so proud of the upcoming guests. Next week, directly from Norway, Dr. Brownie Kilde, Mind Control. And following, Commander Sergeant Major Robert Dean, Andrew Basiago and Dr. Leonard Horowitz. For updates on news and our upcoming guests, visit our website at veritasshow.com. If you need to get in touch with me with questions or feedback, send an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. And one last thing. Some of you are contacting me for a free subscription to Veritas. For that, please go to the free subscription link on our website, veritasshow.com. If you are 100% qualified to transcribe shows, I will give you a three-month subscription for every show you transcribe. Folks, I treat every show like a movie production. The quality of the research, the sound, no commercial interruptions, etc. A lot of time and resources go into producing this show. I encourage you to compare with other shows. So, if you can provide value to Veritas or have ideas that can turn into value, I will reciprocate as well. And now, get ready for three hours of Cliff High and his predictions from now through 2012. Swine flu, mandatory vaccinations, civil war, the new American revolution, the collapse of the US dollar, Attempts by the government to shut down the internet, the breakup of the union, alien wars, and so much more. If you want to continue believing, stop listening now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.
This is Catherine Austin Fitz, and you're listening to The Very Tough Show. Cliff High and George Ure, two self-described time monks, shared dire predictions based on the WebBot technology. Their method captures changes in language patterns within internet discussions. This aggregated data is then processed with software to determine various keywords, which they interpret in a predictive fashion. For the coming months, the two recommend developing self-sufficiency and the ability to live off the grid. The WebUp project, developed in the late 1990s, was created to assist in making stock market predictions. The technology uses a system of spiders to crawl the internet and search for keywords, much like a search engine does. When a keyword is located, the bot program takes a snapshot of the text preceding and following the keyword. The snapshot of text is sent to a central location, where it is then filtered to define meaning. The project's concept is aimed at tapping into the collective unconscious of the universe and its inhabitants. As well, there's an interesting time concept involved and an unusual concept of a tipping point regarding the past, current, and future times. In 2001, the bud operators began to notice that stock market predictions were not the only matters being accurately predicted by the program, and they began to take notice of the coincidence with occurrences and explored it further. One of the first accurate predictions from the bot program took place in June of 2001. At that time, the program predicted that a life-altering event would take place within the next 60 to 90 days, an occurrence of such proportion that its effect would be felt worldwide. The program based its prediction on its filtered web chatter content, which ultimately represents the collective unconscious of society. Regrettably, the program's prediction proved accurate and the Twin Towers fell on September the 11th, 2001. And this is where it starts to become really interesting. The BOT program also predicts a worldwide calamity taking place in the year 2012. With us tonight, he is back. One of the creators of the WebBot project, Cliff Hi. Hello, Cliff, and welcome back to the Veritas show. How are you? Yeah, Mel, how are you? I am doing fantastic. Uh, thanks for accepting another invitation, this time for a full show. By the way, I heard your interview with, um, with Michael St. Clair, and the sound was impeccable. Were you using Skype? Yes, I was, yes. I'll try it in the future, because your voice, for the first time, <laughs> I heard the real you. <laughs> well, you know, the terrible part is I had somebody um, listen to it and said, hey, the Duder is back. And at first I didn't understand. And he said, you sounded just like the big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. This is your third time on Veritas, Cliff. You know that, right? I don't keep track of that. My wife was asking me recently, well, how many times have you been on radio? And I thought, well, at least six or seven. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we spoke, it was in May, I believe. And, and you had some dire predictions then. And, and then the following Alta report came out, which made the prior sound like paradise. I want to revisit Alta Report 9 for a moment before we talk about the most recent report and what the predictive linguistics have in store for us. By the way, the California fires... Any relationship to the summer of hell from all time? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was just, our issue was that we just couldn't put all the details. Uh, because in the East Coast, it's been a summer of hell from too much cold. In the Northeast, too much rain. In the Mideast, and pretty soon it's going to be huge storms on the Lower East Coast. So, And then on the West Coast, we have the fires. And in Houston, we have the, um, uh, or Austin uh, through to um, San Antonio, we have record uh, setting, or uh, record uh, set 
for a number of days over 100, and up here in the northwest, we've broken uh, all-time heat records, so the, 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 there were just too many disparate ways in which it was manifesting to just uh, easily encapsulate it, so we just said the summer of hell. I should have said to everybody at the time that I wrote that, oh, bear in mind, most of the summer of hell will happen in the latter half of summer. So a lot of people had sent me emails and said, oh, well, it's two months into summer and nothing's really happened in my area. Well, the guy who sent me that email lives in Los Angeles, so I think he probably has a new idea of what's going on. Well, my family and I took a vacation last week and we went to California escaping the desert heat. And we were driving around Hollywood and we cannot believe when we saw this big banner over a bank saying 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes. So, yes, Clay, during... and, and they usually have nine, I'm told, days over 100 in San Antonio, and they're working in their 50s now, 50-plus 50 days over 100 degrees. Well, during our first appearance, your first appearance, swine flu had just appeared, and that was so coincidental that we had you on the show maybe a day or two after. What most people think or believe is that this is just a new occurrence, when in the 70s it was already tried. I remember clearly you said that it was just a test run, but the big eruption would happen in the fall. Without looking at the altar reports, all you need to do is turn on the TV or go to any mainstream media website, and all you see is swine flu preparation talk. What is your predictive language telling you now? How is it going to play out? Well, right at the moment, uh, we're sort of pleased. I mean, I don't like to say gratified, but I'm, I'm satisfied that the language we forecast back then about the swine flu is showing up in, as we move into fall, as we uh, forecast. Now, at this point, our data suggests that the next big uh, emotional um, uh, response to the swine flu in the language will, will bring out the refuseniks, what we're calling refuseniks. I don't know yes. that the main, mainstream press will call them that. But I suspect there will be impacts on school systems nationwide as uh, awake and aware parents get out there and, and haul their children out of school rather than have them vaccinated with that toxic stew that they're calling the swine flu vaccine. And so the refuseniks are going to make a, uh, a big political splash this fall, but nothing compared to what's going to occur in January and February relative to the next go-round of the swine flu. That's going to be the next emotional bubble, and you'll probably see the linguistics and the mainstream media building up to that bubble of swine flu problems in late December. So in other words, you'll be reading or seeing it all over the place in a much more intensified, much more scary language in December as they get prepared for the next wave of the um, epidemic. Now, we need to note that there's also, as part of the refuseniks, lots of language showing up to support their position. That is to say, there's reports coming out about how poorly made the vaccines are, how they don't work, how they're containing all these other chemicals that are nasty for us, and then also how they, uh, even in laboratories, they're not able to get this strain of swine flu to mutate to anything really lethal. Yes, people have died from it, and yes, the mainstream media is really hyping those deaths, but compared to regular flu, it's a non-starter. So its lethality rate, I think, is almost one-tenth of the regular flu, uh, given CDC's own numbers for the U.S. So it's like, big deal. Why, are they so, why is there so much language around it? And obviously, there's some other agenda going on. What I found interesting, uh, Cliff, is that uh, people think that the level, the world health organization hasn't raised their level to six, but it's actually to level six, which means it's the highest one, which gives governments the power to to uh, issue emergency. Uh, and we've only had about, what, 1,000 deaths worldwide, and we Correct. have it at level six. But in the United States alone, we had 33,000 deaths from a regular flu last year. Where was level six then? 
exactly. Why all of the um, uh, fear language around it? What is the big uh, impetus on the? What's the big pressure on government to make them behave this way? One has to wonder. You know, now the media can easily be duped by their sources. The government saying this is coming, and the media is going to run with it. But the government people issuing the the warnings and raising pandemic levels and so forth have an agenda that does not match the reality of the supposed pandemic. Even in um, South America, where it has been slightly more lethal in some small uh, subset populations, it is still running, as I say, about one-tenth as lethal as regular flu or less. And so uh, it brings up the question, you know, it begs the question, why are they doing this? What is their intent? Uh, I know their intent, rather, is to increase fear, and therefore we have to start from that point assuming that, oh, well, maybe this is another uh, method of grabbing more power. Because, of course, once they're on that power path, they become greedy little buggers and just can't get enough. Now, this is a question on everybody's mind. Do you see forced vaccinations taking place? Uh, No, we see lots of language about it. Um, And I'll grant you that, that, um, that we actually will see language appearing in the mainstream media, which so far you notice they're very careful to skirt the issue of forced vaccinations or mandatory. They very rarely use any kind of a word uh, suggesting that this will ever be the case, and they also avoid deliberately reporting on such moves in the states of um, uh, Massachusetts and Iowa and so on. Yes. So, but the, that language for that will appear in late December, and it'll go to the idea of the worst of everybody's fears that there, there may indeed be attempts to do uh, forced vaccinations. Now, let's be real clear about this, though. Our data process never really describes events. It describes the language that will appear after or around those events. So we don't know for a certainty. Well, there will always be that doubt because language can be ambiguous. But given given that caveat, our data never actually describes any forced vaccinations being attempted. What it describes is the adroit use of all of the fear language around forced vaccinations to get people to take the vaccine. And, and it's not, I'm not using weasel words here. I'm, I'm just trying to describe what our data sets show. And that is that they're pointing to the powers that be using fear language and threatening forced, evac, uh, forced vaccinations to try and raise the level of compliance with their wishes. Make sense? Yes, it does. And by the okay, way... So we don't, we don't actually have any kind of language, for instance, describing uh, troops holding people hostage and shoving needles in their arms. We don't have anything like that. We do have language that shows up uh, saying that there will be a lot of uh, legalistic kind of moves by the government to attempt to compel uh, uh, vaccinations. Now, in reality, if you do, and we always, I always like to back off and do a Buckminster Fuller-style resource analysis on any of this stuff to see if there's even a probability or a possibility for it. And I find that very unlikely in the U.S. And even if they brought back every single person that's ever in the armed forces now uh, in any capacity in the United States and gave them all guns and said, you're going to go out and enforce vaccination, we could only get one person for, with a gun every 10 miles, every 10 square miles given the size of the U.S. and the population of the military. So it seems difficult for me to um, find any way that, the, especially under these current economic conditions, that the government of the United States could um, get enough personnel to force vaccinations or force compliance with the laws that they may even attempt to implement. And I think that they will actually 
uh, find this out to the we'll all we'll all discover this this fall when there is the um, vaccination programs and we suddenly or we won't suddenly but we'll start seeing language showing up relative to whole schools being closed because so many parents in some areas are just going to keep their kids out of school as opposed to doing the vaccination and the schools are just going to lose it the man uh, not managers, the, the principals, etc. These people uh, make all of their money for the school system based on child in the seat relative exactly. to the federal government and the kickback of it all. So this is going to cause just um, chaos in the in school systems nationwide. Well, we spoke about the possibility of activating the FEMA internment camps. I remember you said that was probably fear-mongering because the moment we think about it, we we feel fear. However... I've had people, and I've confirmed this, if you go to the National Guard website, and I, I know you, were, you know what I'm talking about, they have internment relocation specialists being hired right now. What does that mean? Well, again, it, it, may, be a, uh, it may be that indeed someone in government thinks that they can pull this off. However, they don't understand mathematics very well. Yes, there is the language in there that makes it seem legitimate, as though they are actually going to hire such people. But bear in mind that, that all it really is is a request for applications, which could be used for a number of reasons, and then they would never, ever actually fill those positions. But even if they attempted to fill those positions, there's not enough money in our current budget, even with the deficit, to hire enough people to man enough posts in order to create actual internment camps. So uh, just, let's just pick an area of like Seattle. You have 1.5 million people in the Seattle in, in Puget Sound region. And in order to do any kind of an internment camp approach that would be meaningful, you would need to have guards that were in the numbers of 50 or 60,000 because they'd have to work in shifts. They can't work 24 by 7. You're also going to need logistics of all kinds, people to drive trucks back and forth for food, water, etc., land, all of these other issues. None of those resources appear to be available at this moment or to be uh, at least through the publicly um, uh, viewable uh, sites where we can track resources in our government, I don't see any kind of a shift of resources towards the manufacture of uh, camps in a meaningful way. Yes, there are the contracts out there that are let out to KBR and Halliburton and all of the big buddies of the powers that be to make money off of building these in, uh, supposed internment camps, but there are not... Uh, giant contracts being let for cement. And the very first thing you need for, for any kind of camps on a nationwide scale is a commitment to buy vast quantities of cement. And cement has a very key uh, component to Western civilization. It's our most intensive uh, energy use for uh, construction. It costs, um, I, I needn't get into that, but they, they, they need, it's a very expensive component. And it's also ubiquitous. It's required. Foundations for everything from guard towers to roadways, etc. So if there was going to be a huge push to build internment camps, you would see vast quantities of cement in your local area being rerouted from local uh, cement manufacturing. And in fact, we do not find that. We find that along with the housing downturn, lots of cement and, and uh, raw material processing companies for the building trades are down. They're not letting out contracts. And I can't find any large government contracts available for review that show uh, enough cement purchases in strange places to make me think that they're actually building huge internment camps. And then again, you get back to the size. This is not a situation where we would, they would attempt to intern a small por portion of the, of the population. Bear in mind that the fear from all of this is brought up by our memories of the Holocaust uh, 60 years ago and the subsequent retelling of that tale repeatedly and the language becoming embedded in our society. And so the 
um, uh, the extermination of the Jewish population by the Germans in World War II is the basis for this fear of the internment camps. As well as locally here, we have the history of the Japanese uh, being interned at the beginning of World War II. And if you want to read an um, exercise in um, logistics, go and look at what had to be done just to intern that small portion of our population here. At that time, the government at the time that they, they started issuing those laws was woefully unprepared to deal with what they had to deal with. And it was chaos. And the chaos was quite considerable on both sides, not only the internees, but the government trying to scramble for the logistics just to make it all happen. And, and that was an extremely small percentage of the population, only about 2% of the West Coast population at the time. So say that refuseniks ran three or four or five percent, or uh, horror of horrors, even matching the um, reputed um, uh, refusal level in the healthcare system, which is one-third. The, 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 right at the moment, the polls are reading pretty much uh, globally that about one-third of all of the healthcare workers are simply going to refuse the vaccine. And if you applied that to the general population in the U.S., that would mean you'd have to inter a hundred million people, if that was your excuse, that is to say the swine flu. So it doesn't make any sense to me. Yes, they're using it as fear language. Yes, it can have other kinds of mind-warping sort of uh, reasons to do it. Maybe you wanted to see how much of the population is actually willing to act as an internment camp guy. Maybe it's just a test. Maybe you wanted to see how desperate populations are in certain areas and if they would be willing to act against the citizens and, and their neighbors just to have a job. You would do so through tests like seeing if you could recruit them to be internment specialists and then seeing how far you could train them to go that route. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And unless you're mind control, I can't see a, an American brother or sister trying to put this into effect to another fellow citizen. And to that, I say, how about the outsourcing that we've had in the past few years, outsourcing of, of intelligence, outsourcing of our troops? Is it far-fetched to believe that maybe we may use foreign troops or United Nations to enforce this? Again, let's look at the logistics. If that's the case, where are you going to get them? If you're going to have 100 million people, one-third of the population, let's even reduce that. Let's just say we're talking 10% of our population in the U.S. That would be 30 million people that would refuse the virus. Well, how are you going to deal with 30 million people in, uh, in, a, in a refusal situation where they just simply refuse to take it? If you're going to use other troops to enforce that, you would need to import on the order of millions of troops and supporting logistics to keep them going. These troops do not exist largest standing army on the planet is the Chinese. Chinese army has no real logistics capability beyond their own border. They cannot support an invasion that has not touched their, their country by land. They've tried this repeatedly and failed. They know that their logistics are not very good at sustaining a force uh, around the planet. That's a, our, our brilliance, by the way. America has a very nasty reputation as a military because our military invariably loses. We don't know how to win wars. We just know how to bomb people and how to sustain bases logistically, globally. But we've lost that because we've outsourced that logistic capability now to the corporate uh, sector. And look at all the problems that have been cropped up in Iraq with all of the um, contractors, very, from the poor food all the way up to the, you know, uh, killing of innocent Iraqis just for the fun of it, that kind of a deal. So uh, so once we went into the mercenary level, our whole empire started to crumble. It was just one of the signs of the empire crumbling. This is a, 
uh, in my uh, macro view of things, this idea of bringing in foreign troops, again, doesn't wash simply because there are not the numbers of troops available. There aren't enough troops in all of NATO to enforce uh, vaccinations on the population of France at 45 million, let alone the U.S. at 300 million. You would take almost the, half the army of the Chinese to do so, and that would still take months to accomplish. And the logistics would be horrific, especially in this case of a collapsing dollar that's going to affect planetary economies. Again, does that make sense? Yes, it does. It can't happen, but I'm saying the numbers just argue really against it. And I know, I know you, you stand firmly with that in the last couple of uh, interviews we've done. But if I look at past precedents, maybe sometimes it can more or less give you a prediction of what happens in the future. And I remember, well, I don't remember, I was too young, but in the 70s when they tried this and they even called it swine flu. 1993, the World Trade Center bombing. They started it, they didn't accomplish it, and then in 2001, boom, checkmate. How about now? They started in the 70s, they didn't accomplish it. Aren't they more prepared now to do this? No, no actually, lesser so. The reason that I say that is twofold. I lived through the 70s experience, and the swine flu was a non-starter at the time, and those people that took the vaccine were 16 times more likely to have a fatal incident than people who just got the flu, and eight more times likely to end up with a debilitating disease. We now know that. We have that history. This works against them in the mental space where all of this is battled out, because really... If you get down to it, if the government wanted to have everybody show up willingly for a vaccine, uh, they need not have it be forced, and it's actually in their interest to be extremely soft about it, and yet at the same time maintain fear, just as we see now through a linguistics battle. But they never actually force you to take anything. What they do is they um, uh, create a, a cognitive dissonance, a, a schism in your mind, and try and generate enough fear generally, even if you're afraid of the vaccine. At some point, you might become so afraid that you would take the vaccine simply because it seemed the lesser of the fears. And so they could, that, that I believe is what's going on, is, um, is an attempt to engineer this all linguistically and within the minds of individuals, the hearts and minds battle, as opposed to a physical battle. So, yes, they might be more prepared uh, in a general sense, having been through that experience, but that's a different generation ago, okay? The current powers that be minions that are running all of this have no experience with that. They were too young. They're the fresh young faces that... Uh, are too young to have any real grasp of how the planet works and how the universe works and are just merely following the orders of their masters um, gleefully almost in many cases but they have they've never they didn't experience the backlash they didn't experience the uh, the whole thing except as perhaps children and they were basically unaware of it then there's the other issue of the collapsing dollar this cannot be discounted the collapsing dollar as it as it morphs into a um, much larger problem for us over this next year which we're already into that year and in, in starting it then it will put pressure on everything including the ability of the government to do anything more than merely coagulate and i say that because at some point Civil servants are simply going to stop taking their paychecks when their paychecks will buy a loaf of bread and two beers, and they've worked all month for that. Right now, I was just reading statistics. The tax-free day in the United States, which used to be in May, is now August 31. That means you're working eight months of the year uh, in order to be able to keep four months of the year's work for yourself. You're giving eight months of the year to the government. That kind of imbalance cannot be sustained. It's a sign of a systemic rot that's going to topple us from the inside. 
All we need to do is send some uh, tea bags to our Congress representatives. Uh, it may no, very no, well we be... be if, I would say, if you want to go that route, we need to note real clearly that um, the, the play, the game that is presented to you that we call voting in the United States, this mock democracy, this mockocracy, yes. is just that. Until the people stand up, if they wanted a peaceful revol- re- revolution here and wanted to, if the populace of the United States decided they wanted to avoid the horrible bloodshed that our, we see in our kind of work, then what they would do is they would start a movement now to recall every single representative of their voting power at any level they possibly could and keep that going all through this coming uh, next eight months or so up until July. Um, that would be the only thing that would prevent the horrific problems that will occur from that point on, because it will be too late waiting until 2010 to vote the bums out. Scrap the whole government. Uh, no, scrap the entire uh, corrupt um, representative game. And that is to say, right now, if you're presented a, the difference between Obama and McCain, it does not matter. There is no difference between those two. Yes, there's many differences between the individual um, men involved, but there's no difference between the two ideologies that they represent because they're both funded and controlled by the same masters. Exactly. So the, only, the only power that the American people have at this point is due to a quirk in our system, we have the ability to vote, and in many areas, we have the ability to issue recalls. And you can get together a bunch of you know, neighbors, you all sign a petition, get enough signatures on there, and you can recall politicians. And here's the thing. The politicians don't work for the populace. They have, so probably since the late 50s, they have not. They've been working for the shadow government and the people that control the shadow government. But we have the ability to fire them. And that's something that the shadow government can only do piecemeal. We could do it wholesale. And once all those minion classes are removed from the, the control of the powers that be and are just thrown out, even if they're replaced with individual crooks that we haul out of jail, it will take a long time for the powers that be to corrupt those individual crooks. And in the meantime, we can expose the whole mass and start rooting out the, the greater corruption that controls our government. But I bet you, in my opinion, until the United States has four or five or six national parties, it won't even be close to a democracy. It'll still be controlled by the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and ultimately all the way back to the Club of Rome and the Bilderbergers at all. And I was just going to say that uh, most of the people who are listening to us right now have awoken to the fact that elections is, is just an illusion. And we know the shadow governments really, it's the invisible hand that rules us. Now, explain to me something. If our Congress has an approval rating, I believe it's about 20, 30 percent. Why 12, do they... but go ahead, yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe that happened recently. But why is it that they have a 90-some percent re-election rate? That's because we never deal with Congress en masse. Congress is, is, uses the divide and conquer. And so... Here's the, here's the thing. It comes down to, to a, a thinking at a local level. And you would say, well, I know the guy's a bastard and a crook, but he's my bastard and he's my crook. He's gotten some more pork in our areas. He's gotten some more of the federal dollars for us. Yes, he's corrupt. But if I vote him, him out, it doesn't really do any good because the 434 other representatives are still going to be there and they're still going to be corrupt. Right. And what we have to recognize is that well, actually, it, 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 we don't really have to recognize that. Universe is going to put us all into a position by July of this coming year where mass movements by the populace of the United States will occur in such a manner as to make the mass movements against the war in the 60s uh, look puny. Uh, it will make any other revolution on the planet look as though it was merely training exercises. 
I kid you not. My data is, it makes the, this next report coming out uh, sometime in the next few weeks here um, is, is not particularly black. I won't say it that way. It's not dark, although there are, there are elements of darkness in it. It is, uh, but it's speaking to some huge levels of movement, um, uh, like the completion of cycles, for instance, or the beginning of cycles. So we're in a long-term cycle. If we were astrologers, we'd be talking about Pluto or some one of these long um, revolution, long orbit planets affecting us. But we're still completing a cycle that began in 1776. And the completion of that cycle won't really occur, I think, until probably 2014 or 2015. But in 2009 and into 2010 particularly, we'll see a return emerging, a rhyming of the beginning of that movement, uh, which included the French Revolution, revolutions here, revolutions throughout the, the, eventually up to the point of the Bolshevik Revolution, as well as the merging of mass media, mass movements, and the uh, global collapse of the dollar and all the pressures that that's going to bring. And so the the pressures on the populace are for the first time in my lifetime since the late 60s are going to bring about a mass movement that the powers that be will not be able to sustain or uh, withstand. And it won't be a question of appeasement. Um, there just won't be time for the, the guys to get out there and try and do appeasement. We're going to talk about a mob action where there will be millions of people involved. Now you're saying that the next Alta report, report will be more dire than the last one? Yes, in that regard. If you're, if you're, it's going to be hard times, and let's be real clear about this. We're facing a period of time which I cannot wrap my head around any scenario that would allow me to be wrong about certain things because there's so many pressures that are facing us on this planet. And one of the things that I'm horrifically uh, appalled about is that I may be right that nearly a billion people will die over these next few years as a, as a result of a combination of factors including uh, disease, uh, revolutionary war, and uh, um, the collapse of the dollar and starvation. And it's a lot of it's going to start with the collapse of the dollar, the collapse of the food stocks, and the starvation that will, will go around the planet. And starvation here in the United States may not mean lots of people actually falling dead, although there, there will be lots. It won't, won't be as horrific as in some areas of the Caribbean, for instance, right? But it'll be such that it'll put a generalized pressure on the populace that has not been seen since the 30s. And this current generation in the last few generations is not particularly used to suffering. And the, the level of, you know, daily hunger and irritability of uh, not being able to obtain goods and having no jobs and huge levels of unemployment will cause um, conditions that really most resemble um, the French Revolution. I believe that the unemployment radio, obviously, and you know this too, is much higher than they tell us because you have independent contractors or real estate agents who lost their quote-unquote jobs and they're not reported in the unemployment uh, lists. But let's talk about commodities, derivatives, dollars in a few minutes. I want to go back to the cloud that's above us today, which is the possibility of the swine flu pandemic and, and maybe forced vaccinations. I call it a designer flu. But what do you really b believe the real purpose of this vaccination is? Uh, population reduction. I mean, it sounds absurd. I hate to even say the words myself, but it is my understanding, and I don't like to use the word belief, okay? Because I'm a linguist, I know the root word of that, and that goes yes. back to the word of, I wish this to be true. I believe. No, I think, and it is my conclusion, 
that I have reached repeatedly and rejected and come back at it a different way and looked at it and found the same conclusion and rejected it again and done this repeatedly. But I keep coming back to the idea that the vaccine is entirely uh, designed for population reduction. And it may not be a short-term effect, maybe a long-term effect that's going to cause so many people to die. Correct. And it's part of a overall uh, generalized plan for population reduction. And we all remember Henry Henry Kissinger. It's just one tactic in in their grander strategy, as was, uh, has been... um, linguistically put out there in either print or audio from various people, as you say, Kissinger at all. And if that is the case, and let's just theorize for a moment, what happens to those of us, and yes, I'm one of them, and you are too, I believe, what happens to us if we refuse? If they finally come out and say, we need to vaccinate you, or it's going to be a criminal offense? Well, actually, let them make it a criminal offense. If enough people are criminal... It has no power. Bear in mind, government has actual very little power. The power is mainly created in your mind. At an individual level, if four or five soldiers show up here with guns, then and they intent on um, uh, exhibiting or manifesting the power of government against a single individual myself, and I'll say it's between myself and five of the soldiers and one um, uh, or two healthcare workers. Uh, actually. Those odds favor me because I'm well-trained in a very highly uh, defensive art. But that's an instance where they're having to put a lot of manpower to an individual. And so we get back to the logistics again. Really, their only power exists to legislate and spend money. They do both very badly. And so they legislate and they spend money to create fear, attempting to get you to um, take a stand. And my stand would be, oh, the penalty is I'll, I'll be a criminal if I don't take this vaccine? Fine. Sure. That's great. Make me a criminal then I'm in a real good subclass with most of the rest of the population sooner or later. And in fact, I might even be on the leading edge and be able to get some great cachet of, from being one of the first or the, of the refuseniks. And if the, then, it, then it's up to them to take an, and have a response. And as long as I'm a sovereign individual and I stand here and say, there is nothing you can do to compel me to do this, and at some point you're going to cross a line and force me to band with others and take you on um, in a different format, then you are risking your position and your power. And so what if they quarantine me here in the house? Uh, big deal, you know, especially as long as I have my communications uh, methods, and even if I don't, if I'm locked up in communicado, you do that to enough people, and the lack of them will become noticed, and it'll start spreading, and so on. The refusenik thing is going to touch a really deep uh, core as well, because it actually won't start with old guys like me, uh, nor young fellows like you. It'll start with the, quote, soccer moms, who are going to start getting really freaked when it comes to getting their kids vaccinated. True, there's a whole lot of moms that are going to do it just because they actually think vaccines work, and there's going to be a whole lot of moms that will do it because they don't really think about things. They just, you know, munch on their on their um, snacks and watch TV and, and tend to the house and, and the kids, but they don't really cogitate on what's going on around them, and they'll just fall into line. However, the government is only planning, only thinking on about 4 to 5% maximum in the level of refuseniks over the course of a whole year. I'm afraid that they're, or I'm not afraid, I have reason to believe, to think that they're going to be facing 15 or 20% level of refuseniks generally, and in some areas, maybe 90% of the people uh, with children in schools are going to be all collectivized and will simply not send their children to school. And that's and it was. Cause, 
Uh, that would cause an immediate uh, mainstream media reaction that they could spin all they wanted, but the underlying message is there that we can shut them down by non-cooperation. I was pleasantly surprised to see that there are some medical professionals out there that are refusing to do this. Our daughter, two, a two-year-old daughter, got sick the other day. We took her to the pediatrician, and we asked him, hey, tell us, what are you planning to do with these vaccinations? And our pediatrician said, I received 100. I don't plan to to vaccinate anyone unless they beg me for it. I will not even vaccinate my own family, he told me. Well, here's something to tell you. There is a thread, uh, an intense level of discussion among doctors who also happen to be Jehovah Witnesses, or, or excuse me, Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, and, they, and the thread started in Southern California, and it is going uh, around through the medical subset of the Internet. I've caught it a couple of times in my data. And it comes from a fellow who is a very erudite doctor, and he's describing uh, as a vegetarian Seventh-day Adventist the danger in vaccinating against anything that is uh, a swine protein. And his, his statement goes to the fact that humans can accept a swine pig valve without rejection because there are certain proteins that are, you know, in your heart. That, uh, but you can accept pig parts, so to speak, with yes. a lower level of rejection than any other uh, intrusion into your body. And it has to do with the similarity between our proteins. And he is personally appalled and has this long letter, must run 30 or 40 paragraphs, describing in a great uh, degree of detail the danger of vaccinating against a protein that is just like two small molecules away from our own. And that is making the rounds. And I think that we'll actually run into a situation where there will be a lot of doctors that will simply accept the vaccine and take it right on over. And, and oops, it sat next to the heat and it expired. Sorry, had to throw it away. Is there such a thing as a waiver for, for this if it happens? There's, well, okay, that gets into the legalistic mind. There are in many different places. For instance, uh, uh, in some places, uh, you can call up your local health department. And in Washington State, you don't have to take a vaccine if you can show that you are... Uh, they don't have any mandatory thing in here in our state yet anyway. But in Washington State and some other states... Uh, there's healthcare uh, waivers, if you will. So, for instance, you can say if you're in the military and you got into the situation where they were going to try and vaccinate you, if you had a slip from a military doctor showing that you were uh, had a long-term history of eczema or psoriasis or some of these other skin conditions that are related to allergies, they won't vaccinate you because of the risk of anaphylactic shock and other things. So there are those people attempting to do that kind of a move, but it won't matter. As I keep telling uh, my friend George Ur. Those are monkey mind, legalistic kind of ploys, and, but you're still playing their game. Where the game breaks is where you stand up and simply say no and put a period next to it. And then the next move is on them. You don't try to explain. You don't try and do anything. You just say no. Now do your worst. And if, you, if you're standing there with 30 or, 40 or 50 other parents and you all say no, even in a school of several hundred, if you've got a group of as small as 30 or 40 or 50 parents that weren't going to allow their children to go, that propagates, you know, because other parents will say, hmm, why is, you know, so-and-so and not letting his kids be vaccinated? I better go and talk. And that kind of thing is where the powers that be are really threatened. We're going to see an episode of it here probably near the end of September, maybe the first part of October. I don't know where it'll be, but I have some geographic hints to suggest that it'll come out of the uh, Tennessee up through the Ohio River Valley area. And it, it's going to be rather shocking to the powers that be, and they'll probably back off the whole vaccination thing until, until January. And then it gets actually very deadly, very ugly. You and I can be counted in the refusenik category. 
if we were in the former Soviet Union, we would end up in the gulags. What happens now? What would be the equivalent of the gulags today? Well, we're living in it. Unfortunately for us, they, there is no ability for, we don't have a Siberia for them to ship us off to. Also bear in mind that the former Soviet Union took advantage of um, uh, divisions by race and divisions by tribal to get one tribe against another, and they used the divide and conquer uh, to go through and you know, not only consolidate their revolution over from 1917 through 1927, uh, but also later on to have mechanisms where if you were going to go after a particular group of people, you would have another group of people do that for you, as opposed to trying to recruit from their own members in order to get it to occur. In the United States, we have a, just a really different situation where the egalitarian, supposedly underpinning of our Constitution, uh, all men being created equal, has created a situation that they won't be able to use indigenous local tribes to get at each other in that sense. So here, that is a real good question. What will they do when people say no? And a lot of people are going to say no. They anticipate, as I say, in the, in the CFR, there's some documents that they've been circulating among themselves, that's the Council for Foreign Relations, Mm-hmm. as well as some of the stuff coming out of the CDC in the recent swine flu conference, where they, in fact, even had classes on how to deal with refusals to, in the part of the population to accept the verbal orders of, quote, health care authorities. And they run into a, uh, a real conundrum because they're planning for about 4%, and they think they can deal with 4% by using overwhelming force and intimidation at a local level to get people to cave and start sort of a... Um, a process of caving into the government. Oh, well, it's you know much better for me to take this vaccine and, and have risk that, that there might be some problem with my health as opposed to getting into that horrid thing of $1,000 a day fine. <laughs> it's like, okay, guys, you're going to level a fine of $1,000 a day at me. I don't have it. I don't know where you're going to get it from, but it doesn't threaten me. You might as well level a fine of a million dollars a day. I can't pay either of them. And in either case, if they're going to use that as the excuse to put me into jail, you obviously want to force me into the criminal class. Well, I'll just take that extra step and I'll go from criminal to revolutionary and see how you like that. But isn't the divide and conquer initiative already here? We have, I might... I am of the opinion that this country has is more polarized now than it's been in decades. You have the Republicans versus the Democrats, the left versus the right. Isn't that the way they keep us divided? That is correct, but I think it's in, I, I, that is correct that they keep us divided that way. But I think your impression is only arrives from the mainstream media that keeps telling you we're you, we're divided. I don't see those divisions. If I go on out and talk to people, if I refuse to listen to the mainstream media, those divisions don't exist to me. They're only in your own mind. How many Republicans, if you're a Democrat, are actively working against you and causing you problems? You never run into those kind of schisms in your daily life. It only exists in the abstractions presented to you by the mainstream media. I have much more in common with, you know, uh, fundamentalist uh, Republicans in the Southeast than I do with any of the representatives that we've ever elected from this state here in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. So we have a class division that's coming out. There's no question about that. And in fact, the warfare, the revolution that's going to come out in the U.S. in in many ways will actually resemble the uh, French Revolution in that it'll be a class struggle, not a any other racial or or religious or subgrouping like that. And it's actually going to arrive that way because we're going to be suddenly everybody who's not a member of the elite is going to be desperately poor. Speaking of a new American revolution, what is it? I think it's 5 to 6% of the people are against the vaccinations. But I strongly see this number growing exponentially in a few weeks from now. Do you think that if this escalates more, it could be a precursor or a catalyst to a new American revolution? 
I believe that it's, um, uh, I don't believe it is a catalyst because I think the revolution will occur without it, but I believe it is a, uh, certainly a temporal indicator that we've gotten into, quote, the hot or active phase of the revolution. And it may be one of those spark points that will trigger subsequent actions. But believe me, the subsequent actions will trigger whether it's from this spark or another one. Make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, so by my data suggests that it doesn't matter if they totally back off on the vaccine and say, oh, we were wrong, and it's not going to bite anybody, y'all go out your business. They'll still try something else, and it won't even matter if they try something else. The dollar will collapse over fall. There will be international incidents that will cause food shortages, the pressure of sudden economic collapse, and, uh, and as you noted earlier, we're probably about 20% unemployment, about twice what the government figures or what the government presents. We have to now, as a, as a basic truism of, of our lives here, uh, not being a member of government, not being a member of the elite, I can say that I operate my life on the principle that government lies. It lies continuously, constantly. The bigger the government, the bigger the lies. The higher the person in the government talking to me, the bigger the lie. And operating on that premise has saved me all kinds of anguish and grief and makes the world make sense. So that being the case, um, all of their lies and everything in terms of unemployment, this sort of thing, will come to naught because it will impact a wave of reality that's going to roll through us from November onward and expose all of those lies and the pressures on our society. So we may reach January and have an official unemployment of, you know, 11.5%. Oh, the horror of it. But the actual unemployment might be closer to 40 or 50%. And you'll notice right now you're starting to see stuff in the mainstream media um, coming out about a giant wave of employment coming from the federal government. And they're talking giant. Right now they're trying to come up with uh, mechanisms whereby they can do another uh, new deal. And they're talking about the idea of maybe having to employ 100 million people. That is to say, basically turning the entire United States, uh, except for some few small pockets, into either a government employee directly or or employed by a subcontractor of the government because there is no other work coming our way as the dollar collapses. And they don't know what they're going to do. There's a race on to see if they'll be able to get that to occur. So I think that the revolutionary pressures, which already exist. You know how many people are against the government. We think Congress is lame. We know it's all corrupt. The lobbyists, everything annoys us. We walk around just kind of irritated constantly because of the direction the country's going in and, and how our pocketbooks are being raped constantly. As in, You have to work eight months of the year in order to just pay your taxes, this kind of thing. And that pressure is going to get to us, and it's really the going to, uh, I guess, motivate all of us to participate in the next phase of the American Revolution, which will get really going real serious here in January and February and reach a minor peak in July. In July, according to our data um, from the next run, is when the, um, the tide turns. Between January and July, uh, we're going to get real active, but um, the government will have some uh, ability to suppress, oppress, and repress the... Um, populace, and they will do so rather brutally, but in July it turns, and we start taking things back. 50% unemployment, that, uh, that's something that A.C. Griffith uh, and I discussed. We did a chemtrail show last week, and by the way, he's a big fan of your Ultra Reports, and he says, hi, if the flu doesn't turn out to be as big as the media says it will, and we just have a couple of more points on the swine flu, and then we'll move on to other topics. If the media says it will, make it a trial run, which I thought it was to be happy to, uh, April and May was supposed to be the trial run. What will the powers that be do 
to finally make their case in order to force the vaccinations. If this well, becomes a reality. Do, yeah, I understand what you're saying. What they're actually doing right now is that there are people working in laboratories across the United States and in other countries attempting to alter the H1N1, H1N5, H2N5, etc., into an extremely lethal uh, super pandemic, and they intend mm-hmm. to release it in January. And they've actually got their orders in to get this happening. The, popul- the powers that be have an intent, according to the conclusions I've reached, of reducing the population. Whatever it is that's driving the powers that, that be to do such strange things as chemtrails and all the hyping about a swine flu that doesn't exist as a real threat. So that, that's kind of moot. It'll never do what, they, what they're hyping about. It's never going to mutate. Uh, there have been a lot of laboratory experiments that show that H1N1 actually mutates into less lethal as it goes forward. So they're going to have to engineer something in the lab and get it out to where a populace is going to be stricken by it and try and make everybody so scared of it that they will fall into line with the vaccinations. It won't work. In fact, I think it'll have the reverse effect by the time we get to January and February. Just a quick parenthesis. I usually, when I'm in the computer, sometimes I observe who's on the website listening to the show. And in the last couple of days, I saw Baxter coming in, and I didn't take a, a print image, but I did take a, a print image that I'll share with you, the audience. Hoffman LaRoche from Europe taking a look and listening to, uh, looking at the blogs and, and our talk about swine flu. So I heard the current swine flu vaccine had been patented. Over a year ago, before the flu ever existed, which yeah, lends more credence that actually, I went and looked, and indeed it has. Good, so which lends more credence to the fact the swine flu was cooked up in a lab, in spite of the claim that it started in a pig farm somewhere in Veracruz, Mexico. So the real push will be around January and February, according to you, when the northern hemisphere will be at its weakest sun levels, and the general populace will be at its lowest level of vitamin D. So Correct. are you saying vitamin D or vitamin D three? Uh, I have both. I actually find I personally do better on straight vitamin D, but uh, the effect is so subtle I wouldn't be concerned either way. What I would be concerned about on a personal level, being an old adult, is that in January I want to be maintaining 5,000 international units a day. And for children, you have to judge the amount of fat they've got and look at, and talk to nutritionists about it. But they can also take uh, what are considered by the government to be mega doses. And, and just as an aside here, by the way, you'll probably see pretty soon in the media warnings about taking mega doses of vitamins in response to the swine flu and how they may even trot out, trot out people that are you know near death because they took too much vitamin D or C or something along these lines as part of their scare tactics. They're really intent on doing this. The language is, is quite clear about that. So, But yes, um, that's what they're going to do is they're going to have this little uh, pop-off here in September as they try and get the school children to all fall in line and take the vaccine and, and act as the carrier to spread the virus out. Bear in mind that one of the things they're going to do is to try and give the um, vaccine in a liquid form up the snout. Yes. And, okay, and, and the curious part of that is that, as we know from 1947 onward, when they did that to military people, that they would create clusters of that various disease because for the next 72 hours, anybody that's got that vaccine is breathing Sneeze. out, is, is, is actually ill with the virus and is breathing out and is contaminating everyone yes. around them. Exactly. So, so that's actually their distribution method. And in January, they won't be that way. Our data seems to indicate that in January, we'll get to a situation where one or two localities, maybe more, maybe 30 or 40, I don't really have a solid number, and numbers are unreliable in our work, but the archetype suggests that there will be sacrifices of small villages or towns, and they're probably going to pick some small areas and introduce the vaccine, uh, the, um, 
the more lethal version of the swine flu in these areas, and then try and panic the whole country because they they may you know get. And I'm just throwing out numbers that with, with no meaning whatsoever, but they might find a school with um, and, and decide, okay, that school of 60 or 600 is going to be their target, and they may give it a, such a lethal dose that maybe two-thirds of the populace of that school comes down with a horrific sickness, and we may have a very high death rate from that particular instance. And there, then the government comes back out and says, see, see, you, you guys are, should have listened to us. Now everybody rush out and quick take this vaccine. And that's going to be the tactic. It's going to be in the midst of other chaos, and it'll probably fail, but it, it may work in some areas. And there is going to be um, a terrible backlash from the vaccine. I, we still do show that enough people take it that it will cause a healthcare crisis of its own uh, in later in 2010 as these people become very ill and become a drain on the general populace in terms of our ability to support them. So obviously the end game is to depopulate. And what you said is very interesting because I spoke to somebody a few months ago when this whole thing started. Back then talking about not allowing anybody to vaccinate you. But if that is what the government knows that's going to happen, a lot of people are going to refuse. They do it, as you said, the vaccine through the nose. They do it with the purpose of making everybody else around you who's not taking the vaccine contagious. That way they cover everybody. Correct. It's a distribution method, and it's part of their fear-inducing uh, process, correct? And by the way, you're one of the few people I've heard talking about vitamin D and D3. Uh, you know Henry Deacon? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I do, yeah. He, he's the, uh, the only other person I've heard talking about uh, D, D3, 2,000 milligrams in the summer, maybe 5,000 in the winter. Am I correct? Correct, yes. For, for a healthy adult... Uh, with a reasonable layer of fat on them. D is a fat-soluble vitamin. You can get overdoses on it, but I think you got to, for, really for a normal adult human male, it'd probably be on the order of 50 or 60,000 international units taken for an extended period of time to actually get to an overdose because the literature suggests that 40,000 international units can be made by the human body even today with a full-body exposure for two hours in the sun. So if your body is creating 40,000 international unit levels of vitamin D, you can certainly tolerate uh, 5,000 international units, and there is a direct correlation between having 5,000 unit individual or international units in your blood and uh, lack of disease. This correlation was done in some of the most harshest of environments, which is Sweden and, and Norway, where they have a high vitamin D content because of their fish diet. <laughs> we, we needn't go down that trail, but basically they, the people that had high vitamin D in Norway in the long six-month tunnel of no light Uh, right. were very healthy relative to those who did not. And that this was an immigrant populace versus the native population. So, for very instance, there's a Muslim populace that's uh, immigrated into Sweden, of all places, and the Muslim populace not only having darker skin, which is a different issue with making vitamin D, but also their diet is such that they don't eat the same as the n native Scandinavians, and they have a much higher rate of all kinds of incident colds, flus, etc., that the native population of Sweden does not have. Makes so for, absolutely, and for the audience, just explain to them why is it that January and February are so critical for the powers that be to do the checkmate? Because here's the issue: uh, vitamin D is sustained in your system for some time. Uh, as a vegetarian, I'm very aware of how long vitamins uh, last in your system and how you have to go about getting them. Because I don't have the ability to take them in from any meat or, or animal-based product, so. In, in, in our northern hemisphere, we start having lower light levels. Light is used in its contact with your skin to convert a certain type of cholesterol into vitamin D. 
and uh, vitamin D protects your immune system. It does. It's anti-cancerous, and it does all kinds of cool things for you. But we now have a situation where even without chemtrails, even without pollution, just the ordinary cloud covers prevent enough from in winter, from fall through winter, that prevent, prevents enough sunlight on you. Plus, you're mainly an indoor critter these days. We don't stay out for hours and hours and hours in the winter the way our forefathers used to. We we're working in cube farms, you know, driving in cars and in malls, this kind of thing. So we just don't get the sun exposure and we just don't make the vitamin D in our system. In any event, though, what we do make over summer is gone by January, and that's when your immune system is at its weakest, and thus it is no real surprise that the main peaks, if you look on graphs, of any kind of flu and cold is in January, February relative to the northern hemisphere. And so thus it's a kind of situation where if they're going to get you, that's when you're going to be at your weakest. Now, before we take a break, and after this, we're going to be talking about some of the the issues that we talked about before, for example, the Israeli mistake. I want to touch that. But indulge me for one second with this theory, chemtrails. I want to know if there's a correlation between this and the forced vaccination. And here's what I'm saying. Aluminum has been found in many cities, hundreds and hundreds of higher levels than the EPA allows. Aluminum blocks solar rays. Blocking solar rays will cause population to lose the absorption of vitamin D. Is there a correlation between what we see in the skies and what's coming? I believe so. And I also believe that there's another factor that that you're not necessarily taking into account there. Aluminum has been shown to have a correlation in the human body with the onset of dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's, yes. Correct. So if you get enough aluminum in your system, you can actually induce dementia. But what a lot of people fail to realize is that there's a side part to dementia, which is not um, the uh, loss of memory and the ability to think well, but is the loss of the ability of control of your emotional state. And part of the, uh, there were some studies that were done in the late 40s and 50s when they were going to use uh, basically an aluminum gas, if you will, aluminized uh, or a particulates at, a, at an almost gas level against enemy troops with the theory that if they got them to breathe it for a couple of days, the guys would be so emotionally um, uh, unstable as to just go along with any, whatever anybody came and told them, no matter who that was, simply because they weren't able to, to handle their own emotional estate. In essence, it makes the absorption of aluminum as a subset of its uh, uh, horrors that it causes on the human body at low levels seems to induce a paralysis of will, if you, if you can understand it from that viewpoint. And so it would actually make you more compliant. And uh, it, so as a side effect, it does not hurt the general um, uh, goal of the powers that be to spray that stuff around simply because as we walk around and breathe it, we're less likely to be our own people, so to speak, and get raspy when we're offended by what government does. Make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think of, uh, I discussed this during the chemtrail show, where I find people to be somewhat in a comatose level or denial mentality. I really wonder if this is having a cognitive ability deterioration because of what they're seeing in the air and just what happened in Northern Ireland. The, yes. the Brits were, you know, giving 30 times the levels of fluoride so people could be just calm. Correct. And it's very much like the idea of putting um, uh, chemicals into the food of prisoners to be able to control them, to make them more docile, just so you, they're less trouble. And here they're maybe attempting it on a mass scale just as a side effect for one of their, their other um, uh, goals or, or agendas. 
In other words, the goal might have been, oh, well, let's spray something in the air to get rid of all the solar radiation and, and avoid the global warming. And their choice came down to aluminum or sulfur. And sulfur doesn't cause that reaction, but aluminum does. And so the government says, well, hey, as long as we're doing that, we might as well throw aluminum in there to make the populace a little bit easier to control once they figure out what's going on. Exactly, exactly. And it's very important to let the audience know that this is not only happening in the United States, it's happening almost everywhere where you are. It's, um, well, the chemtrails are global, but they're not ubiquitous. So, for instance, I do speak with Russians and people in China, uh, in northern China, Mongolia, that don't see the chemtrails as much as we do here, and they usually see them long distances away in the... Um, uh, over cities. And I have to say that I had occasion to take a train from Portland to Olympia. And as I left Portland, there were no chemtrails for all, uh, all through southwestern Washington. But as we approached Puget Sound, uh, where Olympia is located, uh, and at the northern end of Puget Sound is Seattle and a collection of all kinds of cities, Seattle, Everett, etc. At the south end of the Sound is Olympia and a few other areas. Puget Sound had a heavy chemtrail layer over it that I could see being formed as I was speeding towards it in the train. But in between there, it was nice and clear and sunny and there were no chemtrails. So that got me to thinking. This was back this past summer and I put out a, a couple of calls for assistance to some irregular uh, friends and, and aides on the internet. And we did a quick study that seemed to suggest that only certain sized population areas are actually getting the chemtrails. So for instance, uh, George Ure down in Texas in a small town of perhaps 150 uh, core residents in the town itself and then spread out over a rural area, they don't really ever see chemtrails. It's rare for them to see them. But people that are 150 miles away in Houston, Austin, um, uh, San Antonio, see them constantly. Any place near a military base sees them constantly, uh, as Puget Sound does. But even 30 or 40 miles south of me, they rarely actually get them overhead. And I'm so, again, it's population density that appears to be the trigger. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I'm sitting at the beach in Mexico, a very small town, and I see a plane coming in, start spraying, it would turn back and start praying, spraying again, but it created a square. Outside that square, no population whatsoever. So it was obviously being done to affect whoever was underneath it. That's correct. And this, is a, this begs the issue of the original use of the chemtrail patents. Because the chemtrail patents, that if you find them in the U.S. for all of the different uh, forms of the chemtrails, and there must be about 404 patents the last time I looked that are effective of this, all seem to go to the idea of turning back radiation from space. If that's the case, there's no reason in, to spray it over cities per se. Yeah, you could make, or population centers, you could maybe make the case that these are heat islands and you want to uh, reflect whatever heat you can from these heat islands, like the city structure itself. But there's also other naturally occurring heat islands that you would want to spray over, such as uh, large-scale deserts or dark areas of the planet that absorb a lot of heat, and we don't find those having spray. So, again, the rationale for this being a method of turning back solar radiation seems to be fading in my uh, conclusion set, and it appears to be more and more focused to what they're doing to the people underneath the chemtrails. I mean, why aluminum? I remember September the 13th, 2001, when a Canadian reporter interviewed Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, and asked him, Mr. Secretary, what happens? How are you prepared to handle another attack to deal with panic? And he said, no problem. We have Valium and Prozac in aerosol that we can deploy. Yeah. Didn't he mean a chemtrail? 
Yeah, basically, yeah. And of course, this is not just aluminum in the chemtrails. Oh no, barium, silica, and so many other things. Yeah, cadmium even, and, and so it has some specific purpose. Usually, the um, powers that be wouldn't waste. Uh, resources that way um, willy-nilly. They would have some agenda and do some level of testing. They're methodical and clever, not necessarily really brilliant or smart. So it comes back to my way of thinking that there is some specific uh, subset of energies they're either trying to reflect away from from population centers or there is a specific subset of mineral-based compounds that they want humans to ingest for some reason. And we now have to acknowledge it's in the food system. It's affecting the oceans. There's been so much spraying that the large scales of the large areas of the planet are now uh, totally polluted with it. And we have a serious issue ahead of us in the next uh, decades and centuries to overcome the legacy of, of vast quantities of pollution in the form of not only chemtrails per se, but also the carrier agents in the chemtrails, the uh, emulsifiers and so on are starting to show up now also in our water supply and so on. And so there's been a, at least a 10-year-long uh, period of time. I saw my first set of five airplanes making a, a grid, like you say. I thought of it as a rug or a mat over yes. Puget Sound in 1997. So I've been, and I saw my first chemtrail result in 1996, although I didn't recognize what I was looking at, right? Just like theoretically the Natives in Polynesia didn't recognize Captain Cook's ships as ships because they'd never seen anything at all like it. They exactly. just couldn't make it work in their head. And the first time I saw a chemtrail, it was like, no, it just it made no sense at all. And it wasn't until I was out on a kayak in Puget Sound and was out there for five or six, five extra hours as the tide changed. I just went out away and just waited for the tide to, to turn so I could get back into this easy uh, lift-out point. So I was out there for a number of hours. I'd taken my sun hat and all this. was having a pleasant day. And I just could not believe my eyes because I saw these five planes flying in uh, patterns relative to each other and then relative to fixed points on the land that I could determine. Uh, because I was uh, my particular spot in Puget Sound, I could easily base their um, movements against relative islands and Mount Rainier, etc. And, and they sprayed a, an area that was uh, approximately 35 miles wide by about 65 miles long into a very dense mat, and then it blew away. Uh, heading to the east, and then they did it all over again. Over the course of five hours, I saw them do it five times. And uh, it was just a a shock, an intellectual shock as well as a physical one. But the uh, effort that they're going to, uh, when I did a resource analysis of it, suggests that we're burning about 9,000 gallons of kerosene an hour here in the U.S. just to maintain chemtrails over the West Coast. That's staggering. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, the the resources that are being used here is just phenomenal. Uh, Where's the money coming from? Forever. That's what I want to know. Shadow government. Exactly. And, well, from taxpayers, basically, from the backs of all of us slaves. Of course. And so this is this is really actually gets back to our other thing about the coming uh, revolution in the U.S. This is going to be a revolution that won't be like our last political revolution. Our data shows that the revolution that we're going to have is going to stem from uh, uh, what I think of as enlightened or aware people like ourselves, but it's going to spread throughout the general populace to the point that we all recognize that we have been used as slaves for most of our lives, and when the slaves revolt here, it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be planet-wide. So it's kind of like, well, I know it's coming, and now it's time to get ready for it. 
Uh, it's going to be really nasty relative to that, but hopefully, uh, well, actually, our data in the longer term suggests by November of 2010, chemtrails won't be an issue anymore. Hmm. Well, Cliff, we have to take one and only break, but before I... We take a break. I want to ask you this question and leave it as a cliffhanger for the audience. And we'll move to other topics. If Israel reconsiders their attack on the Iranian underground bunker, the Israeli mistake, as you stated on the Alter Report, and as a result, no radioactivity is released into the atmosphere, is it still probable the consequences as outlined in the Alter? And I'll get your answer on the other side. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to The Veritas Show. We're here with Cliff High from HalfPassHuman.com, the web project. Stay with us. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, VeritasShow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Dr. Raunilena Lukanen-Kilde, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.